Good morning. Good morning. My name is Daniel. Um, I'm part of the leadership team here, and it's a pleasure to be here this morning with you all. Um, you're probably wondering what this is all about here. Uh, you know me. I like my props. Um, I have, I'm, not, I'm not injured, so don't worry. Uh, I haven't got a Gandalf complexion, or delusion, I mean, sorry. Um, but I thought I'd share a story this morning that I was a bit tentative to share. Um, Perhaps it reveals something of my character. I don't know. (laughs) But I'll go with it nonetheless, all right? And you can make a judgment for yourself. A few years ago, uh, a friend of mine was having a birthday, a really good friend of mine. And I was going to buy him a present. And my friend, um, if you know him, he's he's a bit eccentric. Um, So I thought, I want to get him something that kind of fits him. And as I was looking for a present, I came across a walking stick. Not this one. Um, but a walking stick that was lovely. Uh, it was very ornate. It had on the top of it, the head of it, uh, this very intricate lion's head. And I thought, yeah, that's just for Ollie. I'll get that for him. But here's the thing. I was here in Belfast, and he was all the way over in London, and I was going to go and visit him. And I had this dilemma of how would I get this walking stick from Belfast to London? And so I thought, well, it's not going to fit in my hand luggage. It's too, too long for that. Uh, I didn't really want to pay extra to get it over there, either by post, it might get damaged, or even pay an extra to get it through the airport, because I'm a bit stingy that way. Um, so I thought, well, if I try and take it through, if I'm just holding it, security might think it's a weapon. So what do I do? A bit of dilemma here. What do I do? So I thought, you know what? I'll just use it. I'll pretend. So that's what I did. If you were to go into the CCT footage of Belfast International Airport of that particular time and day, you would find me walking through an airport with a bit of a limp and a walking stick. And that's what I did. And I walked through to security eventually. And as I was heading to security, you know, you've got to check in. You've got to show them your ticket before they let you through to the conveyor belt. And as I was walking there, the guy just lifted up the barrier for me. He let me go through to the speedy section of security, no zigzagging whatsoever. Shame was starting to build here a wee bit, you can think. So I came to the conveyor belt, again, you know, perfecting my wee limp as I went. And as I was heading towards the conveyor belt, at the same pace, I might add, was this very lovely old couple walking ahead. And they saw me, and I saw them. And obviously, I was going to let them go first. But they insisted, no, no, you go first. So I did. I got the walking stick through security. Didn't even have to put it on the conveyor belt. They let me carry it through and walk through the checkpoint. And I went and got a coffee. And as I approached there, I got my coffee. And I was going to just pick it up and go. But the lady at the checkout, she just said, Sir, you go and sit down, and I'll bring that to you. More shame heaping on me here. And eventually, I got onto the plane with my walking stick. And my seat was right at the back of the plane. But no. As I got on the plane, the air hostess said to me, Sir, you can sit right at the front here with all the legroom that you need. Oh my goodness. I felt the worst person ever, but I got the walking stick through. The reason I tell you that story is it was a moment before I decided to go through with my plan was this decision. Do I press on or do I go back? Have you ever been in a situation where you're about to start something or you've just started it, and there's this inner dialogue going on, and you're thinking of all the possible situations that could occur, all the possible outcomes. But eventually, you land with the question, 
do I press on or do I go back? Life, when you think about it, is full of these moments, yeah? From the mundane of, you know, do I buy this item of clothing or, no, I'm not going to do that, to am I going to eat this entire packet of donuts? That's my one that I have to contend with quite often. Do I even give one to Naomi? Mm, I usually just eat them all. Um, but usually there's some more serious ones, isn't there? You know, moments such as, you know, am I going to take this job or am I going to stay where I am? Shall I carry on with further education or maybe I'll go traveling for a year instead? Shall we get married? Life is full of these moments of do I press on or do I go back? As Dave said there, we're continuing our series in Colony of Christ, which is a study in the letter of Philippians. And if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd love it if you could turn to the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. It's going to be coming up behind me too. It's Philippians 3, verses 12, and then into chapter 4, verse 1. I'll give you a second just to turn to it. So, Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love, and long for my joy and my crown. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. If we were to sum up Philippians in a phrase, I think it would be this. Now, hopefully that's the kind of theme that we've been trying to get through with you guys over this series, is that we are to live as citizens of the gospel of King Jesus. Hashtag, this is the big idea. Hashtag recap over, all right? But what does it mean to be a citizen of the gospel, a citizen of heaven, as Paul puts it in our passage this morning? And is this something that we're meant to do or something that we do after death, that we become after death? Being a citizen of heaven wasn't really language, I don't know about you, it wasn't language I was familiar with growing up. Um, In my church tradition, we talked a lot about two things. One was salvation and one was death. The gospel was framed in such a way that it was regarded as this like golden ticket, a get-out-of-jail-free card for when death comes a-calling. Once you had that ticket, you could relax, assured that you would get through the pearly gates of heaven. Does that sound familiar? Therefore, I knew about what it meant to become a Christian, but what often followed was this like catapulting to death arriving at heaven, and our job was to now help others repeat that same pattern 
as many people as possible. You see, this emphasis on our initial faith being grasped by Jesus and this emphasis of destiny, of heaven and the return of Jesus has perhaps led to this underemphasis of what's going on in the middle, yeah? The here and now. What are we supposed to do before we die? But scripture has so much to say about it and particularly Paul's letter to the Philippians. So what does Philippians have to say about this middle ground? The ground in which Paul terms it as we are to press on. Perhaps one of my favorite verses in scripture is Philippians 1.6. The one who began a good work in you shall bring it to completion. And I think this verse caveats nicely with the beginning of our passage where Paul talks about pressing on towards the goal. Yes, the language used does highlight this kind of beginning and end, but you cannot ignore that there's this process, a journey taking place between the two. I suppose what strikes me the most about these two passages is that the process is something that both God and we have a part in. Yes, God begins it and brings it to completion, but we also must press on in the middle as he draws us to that end. I'll put it on behind me here. Um, so if you imagine that, that verse, chapter one, verse six, is like bookends to this verse. So as a result of God who began a good work in you, in response to that, we realize we, don't have, we haven't already attained it all, but we press on. We press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, and God will bring it to completion. So if we're going to give this middle ground, this process, a name or a phrase, verse 15 in our passage gives us a clue. It says this, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. See, the preceding verses, Paul emphasizes his own personal desire to press on towards the goal of glory, towards King Jesus. And this is something he desires the Philippians and certainly us today to imitate. This way of thinking and being is a sign, as Paul terms it, of maturity. Therefore, The process has something to do with being mature or moving towards maturity. So this morning, we're going to pick pick out some of these things from this passage to help us as followers of the way, followers of the king, understand what it is to move towards maturity. We're going to look at three things just to help us through. So towards maturity, number one is towards maturity has to begin with being captivated by the one who is captivated with you. And then we're going to look at maturity towards maturity is a coming together and then lastly and briefly we're going to look at towards maturity is to stand firm together in the story of God so firstly towards maturity has to begin with being captivated by the one who is captivated with you so this interval of faith sorry this interval between faith in Jesus and coming home to him is the time broadly speaking where our character is formed by the Spirit, or as N.T. Wright puts it, God is in the business of making us fully human beings. When reading this passage, people often focus on Paul's picture of a runner in a race, as he describes it, heading towards that finishing line. This is the way in which we should approach being a follower of Jesus. You forget what is behind and you strain on ahead, don't you? We're, We're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This sort of emphasis of you know, the attributes of a runner and all that he needs and to prepare himself in order to run a race. These are the kind of things, if you heard this passage being spoke about before, is what we tend to focus on, and that's no bad thing. But before we even get to that, I think there's a question we need to ask, okay? Why run at all? Why on earth would we run at all? 
For some of us, there was a moment when we decided to follow Jesus. For others, it was a more of a gradual process. But either way, you remember a time or period of time where you decided to follow him. For me, I was 11 years old. I remember being absolutely scared of death. And to be honest, I needed reassurance that, you know, something good was going to happen. That I wasn't going to be separated from God. And I wasn't going to be separated from my family either. Ultimately, I I didn't want to be alone. I remember coming home in tears from school. And finally, I prayed the prayer of commitment to follow Jesus. God was, was very present in that moment. I honestly felt his spirit come and reassure me that I was his. And that fear was removed. But here's the thing. If that is only my motivation, if I just remained in that place, for what reason would I continue to follow him? Or to use Paul's language, why would I run at all? Surely I've arrived and I have my pass. Here's the thing. At that time, the story I was caught up in was really, in fact, my own still. But God has started something good in me. And he wasn't done with me yet. And here's the thing, he's not finished with you either. In verse 12 of our passage, Paul writes this, not that I have already obtained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for that which Jesus Christ took hold of me. I put in bold some of those words there, which I'll read. I take hold for Christ Jesus took hold. I take hold for Christ Jesus took hold. You see, it's not that everything is dependent on me, that my story is what gets me through. It's because of Jesus. It's because he took hold of me that I take hold of him. He precedes me. What Paul is saying here is that we will behave in a certain way, not because of ourselves, but as a result of the way Jesus behaved towards us. In other words, Jesus got caught up in my story so that I would be caught up in his. So therefore, what is this story? This week I was listening to a podcast between Donald Miller and Ian Cron. Those of you who know that Donald Miller, uh, he's been around a while now actually, believe it or not. Uh, he wrote the book Blue Like Jazz. If you haven't read it, well worth a read. Uh, certainly one of those formative books for me growing up. And He's having a discussion with Ian Cron, and during their dialogue, there was something that he said that really struck me, and it was this. I spent the first 15 years of my life telling my story. I now try to help others tell theirs. I spent the first 15 years of my life telling my story. I now, I now try to help others tell theirs. And it really st- stuck with me, what he said there. I think we get so caught up in our own stories Perhaps this was the reason we first believed. But we so easily fall back into that place of behaving and we forget the story of God, which is to help others tell their true story. I think what it is to be fully human is to help others tell theirs, to tell a better story. And ultimately this comes from being caught up in the story of God, the very same God who didn't get caught up in his own story And you might be thinking, gosh, that sounds maybe slightly sacrilegious, Dan, doesn't it? Come with me back just a couple of chapters. Philippians 2, verses 3 to 8. And we'll just read this. It says here, Paul writing, speaking to the Philippians, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also into the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul starts by saying, don't be obsessed about your story. Take interest in the story of others. That's what he's calling them to be. But why do that? Why do that? And this is why Paul hangs this on the only person he can hang this on, and that's Jesus. He says, as we continue, Jesus Christ, who through, who through he was the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in, a, in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This was who Paul exhorts us to imitate in our lives. Jesus could have remained in heaven in glory with his father, very much focused on his own story. But he didn't. He became a servant. He emptied himself. He became a human. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. For the sake of what? For our story, our lives, that we would become all that God created us to be. Jesus left the prize of perfect presence with the father in order that we might find our end there. This is the story of God, and he calls us to do the same. Are you caught up in the story of God this morning? Have you taken hold of it? To spend our lives in search of the prize, to fully know Christ and his way, the goal is not attaining perfection or salvation. Otherwise, we're just heading down that road of a gospel of works. But it's a lifelong passion until we meet him face to face. Are you captivated by the one who was first captivated by you. I ended up picking up Blue Light Jazz, uh, just going over some of that again, and I came across this quote from, from Donald Miller, and he's, he's talking about the gospel and Jesus, and I think it paints just a beautiful picture of, of who our God is. He says this, all characters in stories are the ones, sorry, all great characters in stories are the ones who give their lives to something bigger than themselves. And in all the stories, I don't find anyone more noble than Jesus. He gave his life for me in obedience to his father. I truly love him for it. I think the difference in my life came when I realized after reading those gospels that Jesus didn't just love me out of principle. He didn't just love me because it was the right thing to do. Rather, there was something inside me that caused him to love me. I think I realized that if I walked up to his campfire, he would ask me to sit down. He would ask me my story. He would take time to listen to my ramblings or my anger until I could calm down and then he would look me directly in the eye and he would tell me the truth. And I would sense in his voice and in the lines of his face that he liked me. He would rebuke me too. He would tell me that I have prejudices against very religious people and I need to deal with that. He would tell me there are poor people in the world and I need to feed them and that this house somehow would make me happy. I think he would tell me that what my gifts are and why I have them. He would give me ideas on how to use them. I think he would explain to me why my father left and he would point out very clearly all the ways God has taken care of me through the years, all the stuff he has protected me from. 
Perhaps you're in a place where you feel numb towards God, that you don't feel particularly captivated by him, that you've maybe lost that first love, as scripture talks about. Let me ask you this. Where were the thin places in your life where heaven and earth met, where the presence of God was undeniable? A few months ago, uh, we did a, a really good series on the holy habits. You might remember it. And it was all about key practices that help us experience transformation and change, whether it's reading scripture through prayer, worship, serving others. And all of those are great things in order to bring us to to God's presence. But I think in life, we all have things that are unique to us, yeah? They're all good practices, but for you, there'll be something in particular that's unique to you that really helps you to engage with the Father. Perhaps you're someone who is a great thinker. You like to use your mind. And so reading, reading books is the way in which that you communicate and enter into the place of worship with the Father. Perhaps you're someone who loves to sing worship. And it's through listening and engaging in worship songs that you get to that thin place. I'd encourage you, go back to that. If you want to go back over the series, you can do it on our podcast. Do it. Return to that thin place of being captivated with the Father. So hopefully we understand why we're running in the first place, but what else is happening during the race? So our next point is towards maturity is a coming together. In the ancient philosophical world, which Paul knew well, the idea of virtue was very popular And this is how it works. You look and see what the goal is. What is the goal of a human life? And for Aristotle, it was happiness, not something trivial or momentary. It was this kind of idea of a deep contentment of a truly human existence. And this is something you don't arrive at immediately. And so for Aristotle, there were character strengths in order to achieve this state. These character strengths enable us and equip us to become the people we ought to be. So you can think of it like this in terms of learning to play a piano. Both my brother and I uh, were given piano lessons at a very young age. For me, piano wasn't something that captivated me. Oh my goodness. It was an endurance. I tried it for a while, but I didn't practice. And eventually, I just gave up altogether. My brother was very different, though. He loved it. It captivated him. But did he arrive? Did he arrive at knowing how to play a piano as an expert? No. It required hours of learning from a teacher, learning to read music, learning to play with one hand, then both. It then required practice at home, exercising the muscles in his hands with scales, playing the same line of music again, 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 again. Oh my goodness. Could kill him sometimes when he was doing that. until it was just right, and then playing where he didn't even have to look at his hands anymore. He could just play, and he could even hear a tune, and he could play it, and eventually he would play with others in a band. And this is exactly the same with character and certain strengths that are to be practiced in order to become the person you are meant to be. But here's the difference. For Aristotle and his tradition, virtue was always something you played on your own. It was a solo sport. But for Paul, virtue is something you do as a group together. In verse 17, Paul writes, 
join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Join together. It's not a solo sport for Paul. He recognizes this is something we do together, that we press on together. Among the central Christian virtues often referred to as fruits of the Spirit, things like love, patience, kindness, generosity, just to name a few. These are things in their very nature. You can't do them by yourself, can you? They're designed for a community. Scholars would generally agree that Paul's exhortations to the church of Philippi are formed around two matters, opposition in Philippi and then internal unrest amongst the body. In verse 18 of our passage, Paul is referring to the latter, I think, unrest within the body. And earlier on in chapter 2.14, he mentions also grumblings and arguing that are occurring too. And this is something that occurs, isn't it, in community? Internal unrest. It's not a new thing. And it certainly will continue. I have a story about my family I want to tell you, specifically about me and my daughter, okay? But before I begin, let me, let me preface it with this. I love Amelia dearly, okay? I do. I really do. But she can make my blood boil, all right? Really can. She's only three. But she's reached this phase of life, I'm going to term selective hearing, yeah? In fact, it's very selective. Here's an example. Amelia, do you need to pee? No response. She continues to dance around the room and watch TV, but I can tell by her contorted body movements that she really needs the toilet. Keeping calm and collected, I attempt to gain her attention and repeat my first inquiry. Amelia, do you need the toilet? She wanders out of the room to the kitchen to see what's going on there. Body movement still suggesting her bladder is about to burst. I raise my eyes to the heavens. No one likes being ignored, especially by a three-year-old who seemingly has more important things to do than listen to her father or relieve herself for that matter. My blood begins to simmer slightly. I take a deep breath. I get off, off my seat and I head to the kitchen. And as I go in there, I want to say actually before that, um, this isn't a one-off. This is like Groundhog Day 20 of the same issue, and we're only halfway through the week, all right? So my blood, is, my blood is beginning to boil slightly. And as I go in there, I can see her at the far corner looking up at the biscuit jar. And before I can even ask her again about her toilet needs, she says to me, Daddy, can I have a biscuit? I look at the clock, and it's almost lunchtime. I reply, not now, Amelia. It's nearly lunch, but you can have one afterwards. Do you think her response was one of peaceful acceptance at that? No. Arms folded, looks at me with this stone-cold face. She's a mother's daughter, I tell you that. So I get down on my knees, put my arms on her shoulder, hands on her shoulder, and I look into her eyes, and I wait till she focuses on mine, and I ask her again, Amelia, do you need to pee? There is a quick and sharp response, evidently fuming at the lack of biscuits in her life. No. I decide not to press her further. I remind her that if she needs to pee, she needs to come and tell me. So I turn back and I head back to the living room. And just as I'm sitting down, getting comfortable, Amelia walks into the room. And you can guess what she says. Daddy, I need to pee. And in that moment, rage 
Real rage is at my doorstep, believe it or not. It seems slightly silly when you think about the scenario, how easily friction is caused over something so trivial. But the reality is, as human beings, it's in our nature to cause friction. Often we see the negative connotations of friction, but actually, I want to contend that it's a gift from God. Proverbs 27:17 says this, I love this verse, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Perhaps this helps us understand what it means to grow as disciples of Jesus as a community. When I consider the story of Amelia and I, patience isn't something to be learned on your own. It needs to be done in the everyday interactions of one another, doesn't it? Very often through the failure to practice it. Amelia is learning to listen to her father, I think. In fact, she did listen because she did respond to my last instruction, didn't she? But often I'll miss it because I'll be focusing on the fact that she failed to listen to me the first time. Sometimes my response is far from being patient. I gave you maybe quite a rosy picture of how I respond there. Often I will snap. And you know, it's in those moments I'm learning that there is something important to teach her. To be fully human, to move towards maturity, to be like Christ is a life of truth, especially in the midst of failure. Therefore, I've come to Amelia a short time after those blowout moments. With tears still on her face, I look, her, look at her and I tell her I'm sorry. I tell her that I love her. And I want her to know that as, as adults, we get things wrong. That it's important to take responsibility for our actions. And I try my best to help her understand the importance of communicating and listening to each other. Church can be viewed as an almost utopian place where everyone gets along without complaining, where everyone gets it right and spot on in their interactions, yeah? No? Some giggles, some wry smiles. I think you know better. Yet this illusion often persists in our minds, even if we know it's not really true. It's still there, and so we become frustrated, we become angry. However, the beauty of the church is found in the place of friction, where Christ is also present, and by his spirit, we are sharpened to become more like him. Yes, it's messy, it's a place of failure, it's a place of snapping, but it's also an opportunity to forgive, to learn to listen better, to learn to communicate better, to expand our capacity to love and include others. We haven't arrived as pulpits yet, but the beauty of the church is found in the pressing on together that we do not allow friction to divide us, but rather we allow it to sharpen our minds, soften our hearts, and strengthen our passion to see God's kingdom come. So it's in the one anothering that we mature. I wonder who the other is for you at this moment. Who is the person or persons that God is using to help you mature and become fully human? Our last point. Towards maturity is to stand together in the story of God. Paul, Paul's concern is for the Philippians to follow in the way of Jesus that conforms to the death of Christ. As Nietzsche put it, only where graves are is their resurrection. In other words, we practice our death by giving up our will to live on our own terms. Only in that relinquishment are we able to practice resurrection. This isn't something we practice alone. 
but with others. Yet Paul is concerned that there are those who are not following this path. We look at our passage in verse 18 to 19. Paul writes this, For as often told you before now and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Their glory, their story. What Paul is saying here is that they have high renown and honor for themselves alone which is entirely focused on earthly things. Their shame is that they have missed their higher calling as citizens of heaven to follow in the way of Jesus. They are no longer captivated by him. They no longer seek his glory. Their God is their stomach and they separate themselves from community. Ultimately, this will lead to destruction. What better way to remind ourselves to stand firm together in the story of God than to come to the table. It's the story of God who did not get caught up in his own story that humbled himself, got involved in our lives that we might know him and be present with him. This is what we stand firm in together, this truth. Hebrews 10, I think, puts this beautifully. 19 to 25, and I'm reading it from the message. Listen to this. So friends, we can now without hesitation walk right up to God into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice, acting as our priest before God. The curtain into God's presence is his body. So let's do it, full of belief, confident that we're presentable inside inside and out. Let's keep a firm grip on the promises that keep us going. He always keeps his word. He always keeps his word. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out. Not avoiding worshiping together as some do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. I was gonna say I'm gonna invite the band, which is Dave, (laughs) to come up. (laughs) Because we're gonna come to Eucharist. We're gonna come to the table. And... As we do that, perhaps you can stand with me. Uh, As we come to the table, let let this be a reminder to each of us that the good work that God has started in each of us, he will bring to completion. We are citizens of heaven. The meal is a reminder that we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will become like his glorious body. Therefore, let us stand firm together in the knowledge that we are sons and daughters of the Father, citizens of heaven because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are not alone in this journey. We press on together. We spur each other on. We remind each other of the great story of God and help each other to tell better stories, not as citizens of earth, but as citizens of heaven.